Good morning, everybody. What a treat to be here in this, this Zendo on a Sunday, where I spent so many very similar but different Sundays. I want to um, begin my talk with a little poem. This is by TK, a teacher I like from Michigan. TK says, when the mind is pure, it sees purity. When the mind is love, it sees love. When the mind is beauty, it sees beauty. Even where there is impurity, the mind of purity sees the pure. Even where there is unlove, the mind of love finds love. Even where there is ugliness, the mind of beauty sees with a tenderness that restores beauty to everything and everyone. It can't do anything else. The deep and the shallow of each moment is a wonder more profound than anything ever dreamt in the desirings of humanity. It is when this is not known that human beings turn perceiving into suffering. Turn perceiving into suffering and the frantic efforts to relieve suffering. There is no need for remedy when the true condition of things is known. So my talk today, just to talk about thinking differently perhaps, about meditation. So imagine meditation as being, painting itself forth in fullness. That's what you're doing. Or imagine meditation as you being the widest, most crisp and loving avenue for the universe to happen within because where else is it going to happen meditation can be magic can be medicine occasionally meditation can be a sickness but that's a different talk imagine meditation as a deep art that's what i want to talk about uh, Meditation as a deep art. And meditation as an art of being matters because there is no not painting forth a world, a body, a mind, and its perceptions, thoughts, and emotions. This is given with birth. To have, to be body-mind is to be in this continual co-creation. One person walks in a room and they get their room. Another person walks in the room and they get another. Meditation as an art of being matters because sometimes we don't know the degree to which we are painting forth with body, heart, mind, and its perceptions, feelings, etc. A world and its body, heart, and mind. And we paint each other forth we're painted forth, and together we paint worlds forth. 
a place like Great Val, the beauty of this place is painted forth by particular kinds of minds, just like this, just like you. We're doing it right now. We come together and this is, this good thing happens. So I want to talk about what I am calling meditation virtues. And I'll start with um, the first is basicness. Basicness. I like the word primalness, but that kind of sounds like maybe you should go growl in the forest. And maybe you should. Maybe that would be a really good thing to do. There are practices where one goes and growls in the forest, and that's very helpful. But what I mean by um, basicness, there's a teaching, I, I don't know if it was found in, in the Chinese teachings, but it's found in Japanese Zen, and it's the teaching of Nen. And Nen means mind moment. And it's all relative, of course, but we have first Nen, which is... just exactly the moment in its nakedness. And then we have second nen and third nen, which is what we name that moment and what we think about that moment. And that one, what we think about what we thought about that moment and how we feel about how we thought and what we tell someone else about how we feel about how we thought and then they tell us what they feel about how we thought that they thought and that's human culture. But basicness, not as it being better, it's just basic. Basic. And so we're talking about consenting to simplicity. Just the bare taste of breath. Just the bare sound of breath. Just the air on your skin. When you come to this place, the words are so extraneous. It's like a haiku that the best part is the silence after. So that's the first of the arts that we're, first element of the art. The ability to be, to exist as this, this basicness, primalness, the virgin moment. A lot of, of religious symbology, if you look at it in terms of what's it about in meditation, what does that mean? The virgin moment. This is nice to do for a few moments, but then the mind says, hey, wait a second. What is this going to get me? What can I tell people about this later? What will I say about my bare simplicity? The mind doesn't like that something and nothing are the same thing. It wants a souvenir of everything. So it names and says what it is and writes books. And so part of this art is looking into what drives that desire to be clever or why is it 
Why do we insist on sophistication as superiority? It's kind of how we've gotten this ecological crisis is because we can think and do things with our paws, we've decided that we should have dominion and that the other things are not really alive anyway. They just sit there or they just moo or crow or whatever they do. So obviously we should have dominion. They're basic. But they're actually our teachers. This last week I went on and on about cats as the deepest Dharma teachers. I stand by that. <laughs> Truly. So basicness. These are all very intimately related. I don't know that it's a hierarchy. So there's no particular order here. We work with tenderness. You can and maybe have and maybe will orient towards meditation in this kind of heroic way. Like I'm gonna sit down and slay that dragon. Let me put on my armor. Let me brandish my sword and cut the delusions. Actually, there's a statue right there with a the big sword. So there's a time to cut delusions. But in a sense, and maybe this has a cultural context, like everything does, it's easier to sit down and try really hard and, and bring an aggressive attitude towards experience than it is to actually just soften into it. And so tenderness is, exact, is exactly what it sounds like. like. We remember that a non-combative relationship with body-mind is actually where we want to go in meditation anyway. You could do samurai zen, but when do you put down the sword and take off the armor? Do you want to be a samurai? I don't know what, I don't know what you want to be. Take a moment now and um, just feel your, feel your heart, whatever that means for you. Feel your heart and just the, the, the quality of that space. And then feel your whole body as that heart. as if the whole body grew from that root. So tenderness can go a long way to actually taking our practice deeper because some of what we're up against really needs love in order to melt. And when we have um, tenderness, letting go of regular mode of mind is like letting a sugar cube fall into a warm bowl of water rather than whack-a-mole meditation. 
Have you ever done whack-a-mole meditation? Do you know what whack-a-mole is? Like Chuck E. Cheese, that kind of thing? <laughs> you're sitting there and you're very alert. You want to get the ticket so you can get the plastic thing. And you're just waiting for the mole to come up and you just whack it. Some people meditate like that. They sit down and just ready to whack their thoughts. And they get the plastic prize. So tenderness. And that, boy, that's a deep, that's a deep thing. And maybe we really confront some long-standing habits in ourselves if we, we try to really um, engage with that. The next element of the art, or kind of similar two words. First word is uncertainty. We're working with the art of becoming uncertain. And then when we do that, we open up dreaminess. So, talking about uncertainty, we're looking at how the mind snaps shut in conclusions because the mind feels that the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. I'm in North Carolina now, so these kind of things go around. Mind snaps shut in conclusions because something in us is frightened of a live life. The vibrant unknown that opens when we don't have a conclusion. So in some way, as if we know how we're doing, how our marriage is doing, how our practice is going, if we can have this little box of a conclusion, in some ways that feels safer than the space that could be there. Because anything could arise in that space. And I'm not saying your mind creates your reality, but I'm saying that the mind loves its own reality. So the mind snaps shut in a conclusion and then stays in relationship with that conclusion. And meanwhile, there could be something else going on altogether. Like when you've fallen into a snap judgment of somebody and somehow there's a gap in that and you see them differently and you realize you had just been seeing them through your belief the whole time. Those are kind of deep and beautiful moments. So this is the practice of letting the future be unknown, which is true anyway, but deeply letting it be unknown, like not leaning into the next moment whatsoever. Fear doesn't know what it occludes. There's this deep fear of just being utterly now. We can't even walk to the refrigerator without planning five things from point A to point B, many of us. So fear has no access to its own limitation. So we can only, we can only know by taking the plunge and taking it deeper and deeper.
And then we find ourselves here in this, in this where all is motion. And a central element in Buddhism is that observing motion is freeing. That's a weird thing. Why should you look, why should you pay attention that everything goes away? That seems like no fun. First it's no fun, but then it's really fun. That's what you discover in meditation. Or first it's, could be even heartbreaking, but then it becomes deeply enlivening. So observing motion, and that's your thoughts and your body sensations and everything. As you observe motion, you enact that which is not in motion. This motion is relative to the observer. And so these come together, movement and stillness, and we settle in that, and we inhabit stillness in the midst of motion. The teachings would say that life is like a dream, or dream-like. Something to really uh, deeply contemplate. Life is dream-like, and that a willingness to look closely at that frees up something. It's kind of like, it's already all completely in motion. Might as well really accept that to the very bottom. It's already completely in motion. Everything is shifting. Nothing is, nothing is as solidly there as we would like to believe. So we be stillness in the midst of motion and then we let go of even that. So far, it seems like I have described a progression because you rest in basicness and then because you're encountering your humanity and humanity's humanity so intimately, it demands tenderness or you can't stay there. But then as soon as you open to the tenderness to that basic human existence, you can see that there's a way in which it's not as bad as it seemed because it's all motion and that motion is mind. Well, next on the list is longing. Though I wonder if longing is an art. I think more than longing being an art, what I found is that being in relationship with the longing that we have is the art. There 
in spiritual practice, we will encounter the limit of doing. We will encounter the limit of what effort and method can bring us to. And that, that is um, actually a very frustrating place because one can feel the barrier. One of the old teachers said it's the gateless gate. One can feel the barrier that there is something on the other side of something where both the other side and what the something is that's in the way is not clear. You can't, you can't get, it's, it's not tangible. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. It feels like that. Here is, uh, there's a great yogini, her name was Niguma, one of ancient India's um, deepest practitioners, and she wrote a prayer. And if you're not of a devotional or religious person, then you still see how it hits you. This is um, her prayer, an expression of her longing. A treasured teacher, I pray to you, give me energy to let belief in self fall away. Give me energy to see through life's illusions. Give me energy to end reactive thinking. Give me energy to know awareness has no beginning. Give me energy to let confusion subside on its own. Sometimes we muster all our might and we're trying to come to some place of clarity and presence. And all that might is actually stirring the pot. Give me energy to let confusion subside on its own. Give me energy to know whatever arises is beyond words. You don't need to name or label things. They already perfectly communicate themselves. So that is like an articulation of longing. Longing is an energy or a, something we encounter in our bodies, maybe in our dreams even. And that's an, ex, an expression of that longing, a way of being in relationship to it and cutting through the assumption that the universe is dead. Our Forebears in Dharma did not have a materialist view where we were the only living things besides frogs and birds and whatever else. The universe is maybe not dead. So we, we feel longing and we really let in spiritual longing, I was saying earlier, you become kind of like an odd duck. Because your heart's empty in a particular way, and you're not willing to pretend that it gets filled in the ordinary way. Or maybe, maybe you try to hide that, and pretend like 
the hard cider and the sex and Raised by Wolves season two hits the spot pretty close. But you don't pretend, you embody your longing and you're an odd duck because it's a hard thing to do. You let your longing, you let your longing work on you. Longing like a precious flame that you're, you're letting just be there in your body. You're letting it soften you. So then the um, last of these virtues I'll talk about is, um, is bliss. Bliss. We can glide right over the pleasure in what we're doing. That's sort of what the forward momentum of ordinary mind is doing all the time. It's just gliding over. Just gliding over, just on to the next thing. We don't, we don't linger in beauty. We don't linger enough to taste the beauty that's there. And that, that habit comes right into meditation. So that forward momentum Rilke said something like, how is it we became like people who are always in a posture of departing? So this means that the breath in your meditation, for example, is not this um, kind of weapon to make your mind better. It means you feel the pleasure of breathing. Practice is not an instrument to get you where you want to go. It's already the bliss of existence. But you can't be caught up in forward motion to taste that. And this is not simply about just making your meditation a time when you feel good. That's what meditation teachers often just criticize. They say, oh, don't get caught up on that stuff. It's not about that. Which is a little bit baby with the bathwater. No, it's not about that, but it's not not about that either. Because have you ever tried to concentrate on a really boring, dry thing? So we rest in the, the pleasure of our being, and it's a gate to more subtle presence. And there's a lot that can be said about this, but one can be totally undone by bliss in the best sense of, of the word. That which is hard or fixated or sticky, could be physically, it could be emotionally, it could be some of those damned if you do, damned if you don't places. I don't know how to proceed. Nothing is kind of locked in place. Bliss is like how um, a candle's body becomes soft and malleable again when it's lit. 
just be with that, that warmth. I've missed my cat while I've been here. So she comes to my mind and I think about the Dharma. And um, I thought, oh, bliss is how the Dharma purrs. You know, when you're, you finally stop and sit down and you're not running around the house and you've put down your phone and you're not emitting so much noise with your mind and then, then the cat comes over and starts purring in your lap. It's like that. Bliss is how the Dharma purrs in your body when you stop and make enough space for it to do so. And you really feel what's in your lap. Because you could not notice the pleasure of the cat purring in your lap. And it purrs in our lap a lot more than we tend to recognize. So this week we were celebrating the, the teachings of Zen Master Hongzhir, who, um, where this text has been a continual companion for about 20 years. It's so it's it's kind of bottomless, cultivating the empty field, and we've been just trying to celebrate and open up the spirit of his teaching in our in our own way. I'll share one with you and maybe say something about it. Um, the, the translator named this, How to Contemplate Buddha. Contemplating your own authentic form is how to contemplate Buddha. It's you. It's me. It's, it's this, it's this body-mind. Not later when it gets a graduate degree or no longer has trauma or loses weight or fill in the blank. No, it's, it's this body. Contemplating your own authentic form is how to contemplate Buddha. Experience yourself without distractions. Simply surpass partiality and go beyond conceptualizing. Basicness. It's actually be what's there. Experience yourself without distractions. Surpass partiality. That means don't prefer one half of who you are over another or be larger than that preference. I definitely prefer one half of myself than the other. And I think you would too. But I make space to embody them both. Simply surpass partiality and go beyond conceptualizing. The body is already a perfect communication. You don't need to say anything about it. You go out in nature and in that first Nen moment, things communicate themselves utterly, fully, completely. Hongzhi continues, all Buddhas and all minds reach the essence without duality. Practitioners wander and tranquilly dwell in the empty spirit, wondrously permeating, just as the supreme spaciousness permeates this dusty kalpa. Dusty kalpa means 
the world as we walk, dust is continually being kicked up. That's what it means to live in the world is dust. Second men, third men. But what does the dust arise within? Dignified without relying on others and radiant beyond doubt. That's not a kind of invitation to some kind of macho idea of I'm a lone cowboy, North American thing. It's a different kind of dignified without relying on others. Dignified without relying on others and radiant beyond doubt, maintaining this as primary, energy turns around and transforms all estrangement. When we are intimate with ourself, that changes our relationship with the world. Kind of cliche of like how you, if you can't love yourself, you can't really love others. That penetrates really deep. Passing through the world, responding to situations, illumination is without striving and functions without leaving traces. You know, at some point in practice, before practice, we can't even walk into a room without judging this and that and labeling this person and being afraid of that. And the simple thing, the mind is. But at some point, we're just rooted in our authenticity. We just move through. We just move through. Simple. Passing through the world, responding to situations. From the beginning, the clouds leisurely release their rain, drifting past obstacles. Kind of image of just being light, light but moist. Light and moist. And without trying too hard, the state of mind that we cultivate, it gives life. We don't have to try to be good. We don't have to try to be compassionate. We don't have to try to be, we don't have to try to be. Something just flows out. The direct teaching is very pure and steady. Nothing can budge it. Nothing can budge it. Immediately, now, Immediately, without allowing past conditions to turn you, genuinely enact it. And each moment is that invitation. Immediately. The past is irretrievable. Yes, it's here in this body. Yes, it's here in this room. But we don't have to let it turn us. Genuinely enact it. So meditation is a really good thing. And I wanted to share that with you. Thank you so much for doing it. Us doing it is how the lineage continues, just like this, just like this.